Good morning, everybody. My name is Jeff, if we haven't met, and we're going to start by talking about baby talk. Some of you work with kids or have kids of your own or grandkids, um, but you talk to a baby in a toddler differently than you talk to an adult. And I want to start with that. We're going to talk about, we're going we're to read like 40 verses, which I'm both apologetic for and not, actually. Why not? That's good. But we're going to cover some ground. We're going to do Hebrews 8 and 9, and primarily the main thing we're talking about, and I think this I think this might be really helpful for some people because sometimes this is tricky. We're going to talk about why the new covenant is better than the old covenant. And this was, again, this is the letter to the Hebrews. And so the, the audience of the letter originally would have intuited a lot of this stuff. This, it's a pretty dense collection because the author's just running through things that people already know. Uh, most of us, well, none of us grew up in the first century with the temple. <laughs> But I'm guessing most of us did not grow up in a Jewish home understanding all of these things. And so, so it feels a little bit harder sometimes for us to access this because you got to do some work to understand the old covenant before you even realize why the author is saying the new covenant is better. So what I'm going to try to do is beginning, middle, and end, I'm going to try to give us three different ways of talking about, viewing, understanding what this, these chapters are saying and the first is uh, baby talk. So this actually comes from one of the reformers, John Calvin, talked about God talking baby talk to us, that God is speaking how we can understand. And we're going to talk about this old covenant. God is saying in the midst of the old covenant, this relationship we see in the Old Testament, I'm real, I'm here, I'm a continual presence to you. But he's going to do it, baby talk, in a way that they can understand. It's not going to be complete, but it's going to be good enough, right? So we'll talk more about this as we go through, but we're going to talk about the tabernacle. So this is kind of a, a, a recreation. You kind of look at the courtyard, and then you've got this tent of animal skins, and that traveled with the people as they left Egypt and slavery and went on the exodus through the wilderness, uh, and that's what we're going to talk a lot about, the, the, what happened at the tabernacle, what was going on, and the priests and all that stuff. So God says, let's establish a tent or a tabernacle that will show you that I'm always here. Baby talk. Right? I'll even show you I'm here in a physical way. Like his, his glory descends upon the tent and the priest can't even go in. It's tangible. And he said, but, but I understand you're wandering, you're nomads, you're wandering through the wilderness. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to communicate this through a tent of animal skins. I'm going I'm to work with what I have to work with. It's not everything, but it'll be good enough, right? So from this, out of this, a whole kind of religious system is developed to understand Israel, help under, Israel understand several things, but the two primary ones we'll talk about this morning is that God's presence is real and among them. It's a huge part of this. <laughs> but also there's this sin gap. So the Old Covenant, they're, they're, these two things, and they're, they're almost, we'll talk a little bit more as we get in the, in the text, but there's a little bit of a tension there. He's here, but there's a sin gap. And, and the Old Covenant is trying to help Israel understand this. It's baby talk. It's imperfect, and it will pass away when God shows up with his ultimate, truest forgiving presence, right, in the person of Jesus, ultimately Jesus on the cross. The old covenant is preparing the way for that momentous event. The sacrificial system then in the old covenant is incomplete. It's good enough. So when Jay was that age, I just said, don't play with the knife, man. <laughs> 
Don't play in the road. But that's as far as I go with a toddler. That's baby talk. But what do I want as a parent? Do I want him to be 14 years old now and be like, well, my dad said don't play with a knife, so I don't do it. No, I want him to value life. I don't play with knives. I don't play in the road because I value life. There's something bigger and deeper going on. I've matured. I'm beyond baby talk to something else, right? So that's the first way we're going to talk about this. We'll, we'll, we'll come at it from a few different angles, but I want you to be thinking about the old covenant as baby talk. God says, I'm going to use what I got. It's not everything. It's not complete, but it's good enough for now until, until Jesus, right? So chapter 8 is pretty short. We'll get through it pretty quick. Chapter 8, verse 1. Here is the main point. So if, you, if this is your first Sunday with us, good job. You're here for the main point. Good job. We have a high priest who sat down in the place of honor beside the throne of the majestic God in heaven. So what we've been talking about is how Jesus is a superior high priest of the order of Melchizedek. And most of the letter is, and this is just a continuation of it, a reflection of Psalm 110, right? So this is still language from Psalm 110, seating at the right hand of God. Verse 2, there he ministers in the heavenly tabernacle. So I showed you a recreation of the earthly tabernacle, but with Jesus, we're talking about the heavenly tabernacle, the true place of worship that was built by the Lord and not by human hands. And now he's going to run with this idea. And since every high priest is required to offer gifts and sacrifices, our high priest must make an offering too. If he were here on earth, he would not even be a priest since there already are priests who offer the gifts required by the law. He's talking about the Levitical priesthood. They serve in a system of worship that is only a copy a shadow of the real one in heaven. And again, you're, well, what is he talking about? I told you this guy knows the Bible, just knows it. And so he's, he's reflecting on when the old covenant was given, the Mosaic covenant, and he's going to quote from that. For when Moses was getting ready to build the tabernacle, this tent structure, God gave him this warning, be sure that you make everything according to the pattern I have shown you here on the mountain. He's quoting from Exodus. And some of the understanding of that, if, if you know the story, Moses goes up the mountain. Actually, God invites all the people. That's what he wanted, a kingdom of priests. But they're like, no, we don't want that. Let Moses go on our behalf. So Moses becomes the mediator. Moses is good, but Jesus is better. We've talked about that. But the picture is Moses is actually on the top of Mount Sinai as this cloud descends. He's in heaven. <laughs> he is seeing heaven. Heaven has come to earth and so the way the story unfolds is God's telling him what to build, but Moses is seeing the throne room of God. And in some way, the tabernacle, as it's constructed, is a pattern, a copy of that heavenly reality. That's the, that's the idea. So again, if we were Hebrew, Jewish, if we grew up in Israel, we would understand this, but we didn't. And so sometimes it takes a little bit of extra work to get it. Verse 6, but now Jesus, our high priest, has been given a ministry that is far superior to the old priesthood. We've been talking about that. For he is the one who mediates for us a better covenant with God based on better promises. That's what we will be talking about. If the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no need for a second covenant to replace it. That's what I just said, right? It was, it was, it was uh, incomplete but good, but it wasn't faultless. It was not without fault, so we needed a better covenant. Verse 8, but when God found fault with the people, he said, and now we get the longest quote of the Old Testament in the New Testament. He's going to quote from Jeremiah 31. And really kind of the main reason he's doing this is to say, even within the Old Covenant itself, it told you that a new one was coming. <laughs> so don't be surprised by this, right? 
So he, he reads from Jeremiah 31, the day is coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. This covenant will not be like the one I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt. They did not remain faithful to my covenant. So I turned my back on them, says the Lord. But this is the new covenant I will make with the people of Israel on that day, says the Lord. And I'm going to read what, what is one of the distinctives of the new covenant. But I want you to hear this as the author of Hebrews is going to keep coming back to it. He's going to use the language of conscience or conscious, depending on your translation. But as he talks about conscience or conscious, he's talking about what's within us. He's, I think he's referring to this right here. Because there's going to be a strong contrast as we read through of the external and the internal. So he says, the Lord says, I will put my laws in their minds, inside their minds, and I will write them on their hearts. That's something new. That's different. That's, that's not what happened with the old covenant. And I will be their God and they will be my people. It's all about relationship. It's always been about relationship. That's why the, even the language of covenant is used for this whole thing. It's about a relationship. And they will not need to teach their neighbors, nor will they need to teach their relatives, saying, you should know the Lord, for everyone from the least to the greatest will know me already, and I will forgive their wickedness, and I will never again remember their sins. And we're going to celebrate communion at the end of this, and then we're going to do baptism. I just, we're going to keep going because we're covering a lot of ground, but please don't rush past that final verse. <laughs> because of the moment you realize that Jesus actually has decisively dealt with every single sin of yours, it'll change you forever. Just don't rush past that. And I know because I'm a pastor, some of you have heard this before, but you still struggle to believe it. <laughs> I just want to invite you again to trust that every single sin is covered on the cross. You're purified. Why does stuff? Verse 13, when God speaks of a new covenant, it means he has made the first one obsolete. It is now out of date and will soon disappear. So that's a pretty strong statement. What I want to do now is read the next 10 verses and give a little bit more context. And then I, I'm going to give you my second way of understanding the change between the old and the new covenant. And I'll, I'll even come back to that language right there to help you understand what I'm saying. So 10 more verses. Chapter 9, that first covenant between God and Israel had regulations for worship and a place of worship here on earth. There were two rooms in that tabernacle, that tent. In the first room were a lampstand, a table, sacred loaves of bread on the table, and it was called the holy place. And then there was a curtain, and behind the curtain was a second room called the most holy place. And in that room were a gold incense altar and a wooden chest called the Ark of the Covenant, which was covered with gold on all sides. And inside the Ark were a gold jar containing manna and Aaron's staff that sprouted leaves and the stone tablets of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. Above the Ark were the cherubim of divine glory, whose wings stretched out over the Ark's cover, the place of atonement. But we cannot explain these things in detail right now. The author is just saying, look, I'm, I'm not here to discuss those things. I'm just, I can't put a PowerPoint pre presentation in front of you. I can't get illustrations in the scroll, so I just have to describe it verbally. But again, we didn't grow up there, and I can show you pictures, right? So, so again, here's this tent again, just to refresh you. And again, notice you can see the whole structure. So here's then what's being described. Next slide just gives you a layout. You've got the courtyard. You've got the things in front. 
You've got the holy place, and we're going to keep reading. Some of you know this, some of you may not, but this is really important for understanding why the new covenant is superior. Ordinary people, by that, anyone who's not a descendant of Levi, you're not going into the holy place. Now, God's presence, heaven on earth, is in the most holy place. That's the throne room. Only Levites go into the holy place. And only the high priest goes into the most holy place one day a year. You got to understand that. If you grew up, that's such a huge part of the old covenant. And one of the major things that keeps echoing through the book of Hebrews about why what Jesus has done is so amazing. So we'll keep reading. When these things, oh, wait, one more slide. I forgot. Sorry. These are the things that were being described. So just in case you were wondering. I mean, I got the slide. I might as well show you, right? There you go. All right. When these things were all in place, the priests regularly entered the first room as they performed their religious duties. I just said that. But only the high priest ever entered the most holy place and only once, once a year, Day of Atonement. And he always offered blood for his own sins and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. By these regulations, the Holy Spirit revealed that the entrance to the most holy place was not freely open as long as the tabernacle and that whole system around it that it represented were still in use. So again, what he's saying is what I just told you. Ordinary people didn't have free access to the presence of God. Only the Levites. And only the high priest on the Day of Atonement. That's what he's saying. Okay, keep reading. This is an illustration pointing to the present time. For the gifts and sacrifices that the priests offer are not able to cleanse the consciences of the people who bring them. They aren't able to get the law in our mind, to renew our mind. They aren't able to write the law in our heart. They can't do that. <laughs> For that old system deals only with, and I told you this, external. It only deals with food and drink and various cleansing ceremonies. Physical regulations that were in effect only until a better system could be established. A new covenant. So let me try to give you my second kind of way of coming at this, and then we'll, we'll finish off chapter 9. But the new covenant is no longer simply about conformity to an external reality. It's really important. The author's trying to make that point. It's about the condition of your heart. And let's, let's just say you're new to church, you haven't been to church a lot, and you're really struggling to understand what I mean. It's fine. Jesus is the ultimate teacher. I direct you to him. <laughs> In, in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, you will encounter the greatest sermon ever. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. You cannot read it too many times. You can't. Try me on it. Just see. I don't think you can read it too many times. Read through the Sermon on the Mount, and you'll see Jesus teaching this. He says things like, you've heard it said, don't commit murder. That's external. I say, don't rage with anger at your neighbor. That's internal. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. That's external. I say, don't look at another person with lust. In other words, don't use another human being for your own pleasure. <laughs> internal. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. I say, forgive and love your enemy. Right? Jesus is taking these internal baby talk, and he's bringing them home to the reality they were always pointing to. And so my way of, the, the way, I remember when this really sunk in for me, and a lot of you have already heard me teach this, but I, it's just how I learned it, and it sticks with me. I was listening to somebody teach through the Ten Commandments, and they were talking about the commandment, thou shalt not steal. And they said, people are not thieves because they steal. 
They steal because they are thieves. And he said, I, what I mean by that is if you ever, ever watch in a tropical location when a hurricane comes through, people who have been living there for years and never stole a thing will loot. They aren't thieves because they steal. They steal because they're thieves. It's what's inside of us. The external regulations can hold us at bay for a little bit, but eventually our true self is going to come out. You steal because you're a thief. And there's all kinds of problems with this. It's, it's, where the, it's, it's the fault. Uh, you know, the, the, the Hebrew author, is use, the author of Hebrews is using this language that it, was, it wasn't without fault. This is, one of, this is one of the faults. I mean, just read through the Gospels. Jesus is talking about all the faults. But this is one of the faults is that what happens is we begin to define goodness by not doing bad. And we get up in the morning and we're like, well, I didn't steal anything. I'm good. No, 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 no. <laughs> That's not the kingdom at all. God is not after you just not stealing. Well, God, we talk about this all the time. God is after you. You were made in his image. And Jesus is trying to renew that image of your creator in you. And so he's trying to birth his character in you. And what do we learn about the kingdom of God? When the kingdom of God comes, generosity happens. <laughs> because our God is generous to, I mean, just to a T. He's the definition of goodness and generosity. So I told you, I want to talk about this language of the old covenant becoming obsolete. What does that mean? It means this. If, if you allow the Holy Spirit, right? Because the presence of God no longer just dwells in the most holy place. It now dwells in the heart of every single person who has placed their faith in Jesus. You are a temple. And when we gather together like this, we're a temple even in a more unique way. The Holy Spirit is here. He's present among us. He's, he's with us. He's within us. And as you allow him to do the work that only he can do, he will renew, restore, forgive, cleanse, set you free, and you'll become generous like God. So let me ask you this. If you become the kind of person who lives to give rather than take, do you need a law that tells you not to steal? No. If you become generous like our God, you will fulfill the old covenant because you will never steal, but you don't need the law anymore because it's almost laughable to you. I mean, that's part, it's alien to you. It's foreign to you. Why would I steal? Why would I rage with anger? Why would I repay an eye for an eye? That's foreign to me. I don't need the law. I, I love and forgive. I'm at peace with the world. I'm as patient as God is with me, right? <laughs> I'm generous. You understand? That's so that's the second way I want to come at this. You don't need a law telling you not to steal anymore. It's obsolete. All right, so let's read the next 18 verses. I told you, we're reading some scripture today. Hang in there. And then we will, uh, and then I'll give you my last little thing here. So chapter 9, verse 11. So Christ has now become the high priest over all the good things that have come. He has entered the greater, more perfect tabernacle in heaven, which was not made by human hands it is not, and is not part of this created world. So what he's just said is the new covenant is greater because of the location, where it takes place. Not in the copy, but in the actual place, in the heavenly tabernacle. And now he's going to transition to the second point, and it's going to be, again, and I acknowledge living in the medical world we live in and the way we think about blood, this this you got to do a little bit of historical like imagination to go here <laughs> because in the Hebrew mindset, 
blood brought about cleansing and purity, and that's like the opposite of the way we live, right? So you just got to, again, you got to do a little work, enter into their story. It was baby talk, but God was communicating to them in a way they understood. That's what he was doing. So now he's going to talk about how the offering, the, the offering Jesus makes, the blood is better. I mean, again, it sounds weird for us, but, but if you get into the Old Testament story, it's not so weird. Uh, with his own blood, not the blood of goats and calves, he entered the most holy place once for all time and secured our redemption forever. Under the old system, the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer, he's just talking, I think he's just primarily talking about Day of Atonement and this heifer thing, things that only the high priest could do. I think that's why he's talking about that. Could cleanse people's bodies from ceremonial impurity. Again, we're back to just external. Just think how much more the blood of Christ will purify our consciences from sinful deeds. Again, renew our minds and write the law in our hearts so that we can worship the living God. For by the power of the eternal spirit, that's who indwells us, as he did the tabernacle and the temple. By the power of the eternal spirit, Christ offered himself to God as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. And again, he's talking about Christ on the cross, Christ crucified. This is why he is the one who mediates a new covenant between God and people so that all who are called can receive the eternal inheritance God has promised them. It's amazing. For Christ died to set them free from the penalty of the sins they had committed under the first covenant. I mean, so what he's saying there, all sins, past, present, and future, and this will stretch your mind, but all sins were dealt with on the cross, right? So Christ's death on the cross, the Holy Spirit kind of does some time traveling and appropriates the work of Christ on the cross into our lives today. But past, present, and future, all sins were dealt with on the cross. That's a major ar- argument here. And now he's going to have a little wordplay fun. The, the Greek word for will and covenant is the same. And so these, these next few verses will make sense to us. We don't need to be Hebrew to get this. Now, when someone leaves a will, it is necessary to prove that the person who made it is dead. The will goes into effect only after the person's death. While the person who made it is still alive, the will cannot be put into effect. We understand that it's the same today. Verse 18, that is why even the first covenant was put into effect with the blood of an animal. For after Moses had read each of God's commandments to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats along with water and sprinkled both the book of God's law and all the people using hyssop branches and scarlet wool. Again, he's describing a a story we would be very familiar with if we knew our Old Testaments really well. And it's this idea of cleansing. Then he said, the blood confirms the covenant God has made with you. And in the same way, he sprinkled blood on the tabernacle And on everything used for worship. In fact, according to the law of Moses, nearly everything was purified with blood. For without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Again, I I understand it's hard for us to think of blood cleansing. (laughs) But but in their worldview, that's what they understood. God was doing baby talk. And maybe maybe just to to like move it into our time, in Leviticus 17.11, you can read it on your own. But in Leviticus, it basically says that the life of the body is in the blood. So I don't think you're being crazy. If all the blood talk either weirds you out or you just don't get it, uh, it doesn't work perfectly, but you can kind of reread these passages, and where you see the word blood, you can almost just say life. I mean, that might just help you if you're struggling with that. That might help you understand what's being communicated. Verse 23, that is why the tabernacle and everything in it, which were copies of things in heaven, had to be purified by the blood of animals. But the real things in heaven had to be purified with far better sacrifices than the blood of animals. So all this idea of purity and cleansliness. 
And then 24, he's going to shift and he's going to talk about the perpetual nature of Christ's sacrifice, but Nolan's going to cover that next week. Um, I'll be in Rwanda. You can pray for me. But I'll, be, I'll be preaching, actually, and I, I'm going to preach on the Beatitudes, just not a surprise to anybody. But. For Christ did not enter into a holy place made with human hands, which was only a copy of, its, of the true one in heaven. He entered into heaven itself to appear now before God on our behalf. And he did not enter heaven to offer himself again and again, like the high priest here on earth who enters the most holy place year after year with the blood of animals, of an animal. If that had been necessary, Christ would have had to die again and again ever since the world began. And he's like, that would be absurd and ridiculous, right? But now, once for all time, he has appeared at the end of the age to remove sin by his own death as a sacrifice. And just as each person is destined to die once and after that comes judgment, so also Christ was offered once for all time as a sacrifice to take away the sins of the people, many people. He will come again not to deal with our sins, but to bring salvation to all who eagerly are waiting for him. Again, chapter 10, I'll let Nolan unpack what he means there. But let me just summarize it with this in case you got lost. But good job getting through 40 verses this morning. The main thing that Hebrews says here is that Jesus' sacrifice is complete and final. He has done once and for all, for all time, everything that will ever be necessary for us to come into the immediate presence of God. We do not have to wait for a priest to go in on our behalf, you and I. And and Hebrews echoes, you can draw near, boldly come near, come to the throne of God. He has made the once and for all sacrifice for human evil, the sacrifice that can really do away with the guilt and the effects of sin in our hearts. Believe that. Receive that gift of forgiveness. He has opened the way into God's presence such that we have free access, authorized by the high priest, into the inner sanctum of the heavenly temple where God dwells. That's what's being communicated. So having said all this, let me give you a third way. Because again, I acknowledge, I think it can be hard to access this. We got to do a little bit of work and using our imagination. So let me give you one more way of approaching this, and then we'll head to communion and baptisms. And I want to do big picture. So I'll take you back to the beginning. Adam and Eve are placed in the Garden of Eden, and they are given priestly functions. It's part of the human vocation is to to care for the earth the way God would if he were doing it himself. It gives our life actually such purpose, to love as he loves, right? And as as they're described, it says that they till and keep the land, or they or they uh, keep and watch over, depending on your translation. And that exact same phrase is used, I mean exact, intentionally is used to describe the work of the priests in the tabernacle and in the temple. So Adam and Eve have a priestly vocation, and, and you could say before the fall, it was primarily just stewarding God's good creation and maintaining order. God had ordered things, and so they maintained order. But it doesn't last long, long, right? Chapter 3, they rebel, they eat of the tree, and sin enters the story right away. And because of that, the job of the priest changes. The priest can no longer just maintain order. The priest now has to fight off, to use the language of the Old Testament, the chaos waters. (laughs) The priest has to fight off death. The priestly function has, has, has changed a bit. And they do this, they, they, they do this fighting of the chaos waters by separating things out. 
That's why you read through the Old Testament and you get all this confusing language about purity laws. It feels like a really complex system. Who's in and who's out? Who's clean and who's not? Why can't I eat bacon and lobster, right? Like it's, it doesn't always intuitively make sense to us. But, but, that, but, the, but the point is, it's a tutor. It's, it's baby talk. It isn't everything we needed, but it was good. And it was a gift until Christ came. And at the center of this whole complex system, as we talk about what is unclean, what is impure, is death. Death is the absolute taboo. Anything that is against life is sent outside the camp. Again, this visual teaching mechanism, you're trying to have a maximum distance between life, God at the center, and death outside of camp. And think about this. I'll come back to this with communion. The corpse The dead body becomes the most impure object of all. The high priest was not even able to mourn his closest family members lest they make him unclean. The high priest must be untouched by sickness, death, and deformity. The priests keep darkness, sickness, and death at bay, and they maintain this by dividing and separating. And again, this is, you read through it, and there's all these leprosy laws, all these skin. Why are there so? Well, because this is, it's imperfect, and so you're excluded until you're clean. And once you begin to understand some of the stuff about the Old Covenant, you start to realize, oh, that's why the gospel writers included that story. <laughs> because the gospel writers are actually teaching us about the priestly function of Jesus. He no longer does this by dividing and separating right? Jesus draws near. (laughs) That gap, you know, there was this tension with the old covenant, the tabernacles among us, so come near, but there's a sin gap, so stay away. And that tension is never resolved. Again, another reason why the old covenant wasn't enough. There's always this tension in the old covenant of come near, but stay away. (laughs) And with Jesus, the stay away is just gone. He, He touches the leper and brings him into community. He touches the woman bleeding. Actually, doesn't even know it. Brings her into community. He touches the daughter that's died. Brings her into community. (laughs) Jesus is a different kind of priest. A new system. A priest of the order of Melchizedek. The priests under the old system are testifying that something has gone wrong, but they do this by separating themselves from what they consider to be bad. Jesus does it differently. He goes beyond all this separating and dividing, and he instead maintains creation by, not by separating things, but by entering into them. You could say instead of keeping sin far away, he actually begins this process of drawing near to us, even though we're sinners. <laughs> or you could say it this way, Jesus' priesthood is not about separating, but about solidarity. And I feel really confident saying that. Just go back and read the last four or five verses in Hebrews chapter 2. Why is Jesus the perfect high priest? Because he's human. Because he died. Because he's like us. Not, it's no longer what makes him different. It's now how is he like us? And then what is he redeeming? It's incredible. He's a different kind of priest. He now upholds the universe through pain and through suffering. Everything the old priests tried to protect us from and separate us from become the very ways that Jesus carries this new creation project forward. (laughs) And that should mean a lot to you and I. 
Because if you got something old, some of you, I know we got a good younger crowd in here because of our baptisms. Well, not just that, but there's a bunch of you here to support your friends. You haven't entered the realm of buying a house yet. But someday you will, and your first house will probably be old. And you will think many times, I would rather just tear this thing down and start over. But that's not what you do. (laughs) And praise God, that's not what Jesus does. He doesn't look at you and I and look at all the wreckage and all the junk and all the brokenness and say, too much work, I'm done. I'm just going to start over. Give me a baby. No, he, the raw materials of our junk and our brokenness is what he uses. You say, Pastor, you don't know how broken and junky my life is. I say, you don't know how much Jesus loves you. You haven't wrestled with what it means that he went to the cross that he truly has dealt with every one of your sins, that you have immediate and free access to the Father right now. That's what God has done. Jesus is a different kind of priest, and what he's doing is superior. It's better. (laughs) It's so much better. And he'll work through our suffering and through our failure, even through death itself, to bring about life and resurrection. That's who Jesus is. 